0: How's everybody doing today? Whew. I think I'm, yep, I'm on. I hear myself now. It's good to see all of y'all here uh, this morning. We're excited about uh, the next series, the next message in our series. Uh, I want to do a couple announcements for you, just or not a couple announcements. I want to talk about one thing real fast when I have your attention. Uh, I know that we, uh, we mentioned Man Camp and um, this latest rendition with guns and hot dogs, which by the way, I don't even know why we got to make that announcement more than once, If it's guns and hot dogs, why would you not be there if you're a man? Or, you know, why would you not be asking to be there if you're a lady? I mean, I get it. Um, Be a lot of fun. But sometimes we get asked around here, do we not ever do anything for women? And uh, that answer is yes. So I want to give you ladies in the room a save the date opportunity. I want you to write this down. um, January the 20th, so right after the first of the year. Uh, We are hosting a ladies' conference right here in this room. Uh, It's going to be a ton of fun. Um, We have a very special guest coming. Her name is Courtney DeFeo. Did I say that name right? Good. Uh, I know that um, we're real excited about her coming. She actually, you can go to her website, CourtneyDeFeo.com. She wrote a book uh, or has a blog, I think, wrote a book by the same name called Pardon the Mess. And um, you ladies, I think, are in for a treat that day. Uh, also, along with your registration, if you decide to register early, which will be coming up very soon, uh, you're going to get a gift along with your registration, which is crazy. I mean, you guys are up in the game. Uh, I'm going to have men upset that we didn't give them a gift to go to man camp, uh, but it'll be all right. So please save that date, put that down. I would love for us to fill up the room. And uh, those of you who have children, especially, I want you to hear this. I'm making a promise for your, for your husbands on their behalf Uh, You don't have to worry about the kids that day. He's going to take care of them. Uh, He's not going to babysit them because dads don't babysit their kids. That's called being a parent. That's not called being a babysitter. And so, um, you know, which I should know a lot about. I'm sure I kept mine all the time, right? Um, And so just plan to be here and plan to enjoy that day. Uh, I had a chance, uh, my wife and Quentin's wife, uh, Audrey, have been working with a team of ladies to plan this, and I had the chance to kind of vet the speaker and read through some of the stuff that she does and some of the stuff that she has written, and uh, I'm telling you, it is a very special opportunity that we have to be able to have her here. Uh, you're going to enjoy it, so put that down uh, January 20th, This from 9 o'clock that morning until lunch, and so... Um, you can plan to be here for that, and uh, I promise you'll have a good time. All right? Good deal. Let's pray real quick, and then we're going to jump into this week of Suit Up. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you uh, just for the time of worship we were able to enjoy. I pray that you are honored in our in our singing, in our worship of you, uh, in our celebration of you, your son, and uh, what you did on the cross. We pray that you... Uh, that you found pleasure in our worship today. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would um, just speak to our hearts as we open up your word, that you would, um, your Holy Spirit would teach us, guide us through the text this morning, and, um, and give us the courage to obey you. And, um, and Lord, may above everything else, uh, may the G- name of Jesus be honored and glorified. In his name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. So it's good to see all of you again this morning. It is. I'm, I'm excited about this morning's message, um, and I wanted to introduce you to somebody. And um, the uh, I, I know you guys are supposed to turn this thing around. Are you going to do that? Or am I going to have to just keep stalling? Let's let's see the latest fat head for the week. Go ahead and turn him around. So, oh, I didn't know. I didn't mean bring him up here. But all right, there you go. Show everybody. Uh, apparently, Quentin has now become Bobby Boucher. Um, <laughs> Our students have a different fat head for the week, uh, which I'm excited to see what they turn Clay into. Apparently, I was Will Muschamp in an Auburn jersey, and now uh, Quentin is Bobby Boucher, and uh, which is scary because uh, whoever did this work, you it's like you've made Quentin into a caricature. His body is a third of the size of his head, but that's okay. Uh, it looks fantastic. Uh, we love this series, this idea of suit up, because um, it just kind of reminds us, and, and hopefully it reminds you that every day we are entering into a spiritual battle. And uh, and, and every time that we, that we get up in the morning and we go about life, I think that there's been this tendency, I don't know about you, but maybe with me, at different points in times in our life, we kind of get into routines and rhythms. And we just kind of do life and just experience life and take life as it comes without the recognition, the cognizance that we are living in a battle. I mean, we'll, we'll see here in a minute that Paul reminds us that we that there is a war and that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. And um, and, and because of that, because sometimes we just live and we don't, we're not cognizant of that. I think sometimes we fall we fall victim in our lives to the schemes of the devil. And and for me, I to, I want to tell you about a person uh, that I met and that I've actually had a lot of interactions with. And um, you may or may not know who they are, but um, I, I met when I was when me and Jennifer got married, um, we were so broke that we couldn't pay attention. Like, you ever been so broke you couldn't pay attention? You know what I mean? Like, we we just we just you know that was so much more month than money. It wasn't even funny. And and um, and then Jennifer got pregnant with Jalen, and and you know I, I had to I had to go figure things out in life, go figure out. And so part of what I realized is I didn't have a lot of skills to offer. But I did have this capability to sell stuff. Like I was a pretty good communicator and could convince people about it. So I know you'll find this hard to believe, you know, knowing my personality. But I actually was a car salesman at one point. I know that's hard to believe. Like there's no way that guy could be successful at that, right? Uh, but I was pretty good at it. Uh, I was pretty good selling cars. And I ended up selling a whole bunch of other stuff in life, just uh, different types of brokering business, you know, that I got, that I got involved with. And, and was fairly successful at it. But I had met as good as I was. As good as I was in selling things, especially cars, I actually met a salesman that was the best salesman that I had ever met in my life. Like the best. Like I've never met anybody that was a better salesman. Like, have you ever? Like, just out of curiosity, have you ever met this a salesman before that you suddenly felt like like you would you would listen to and you would just feel like that even if you didn't want what they were selling, suddenly you felt like you needed what they were selling. You ever been around that? Like I, that, that's how this person. This is how this person was. It's like. You have suddenly revealed to me that I want something I never even realized I wanted before. And, and not only do I want it, I want it right now. And and this person, I, I got to be honest with you, this, this salesman that I met, like, they got me. All right? I mean, there, there were times when they would sell me something. He would, he would sell me something. And there would be this high, this this dopamine rush, mentally just energy that would come from from, from just making this purchase, you know, from, from making the decision, purchasing that almost as high as the high was would within 24 hours result in just deep regret. Like, why would I have made that decision? Like, why did I buy? I didn't even, I didn't even know I wanted that. As far as I know now, 24 hours later, I didn't want it, but over and over. And here's the thing, here's the thing. It didn't get me just once. Got me like multiple times and, and, and I bet you've experienced this as well, where you have not even realized you wanted something, you ended up suddenly being talked into wanting something so bad you couldn't stand it, you didn't care what the cost was, you didn't care what the repercussions were, you're like, I've got to have it. And then you pull the trigger on that decision, and then, and then it's almost immediately you deal with regret. And my guess is, like me, you have probably even found yourself... Being duped by that salesman another time, and another time, for me i 'll tell you the, one of my stories of how the salesman got me i Jennifer and I had not been married very long and um, and i we decided I decided that that, that we needed a, a new vehicle and so uh, I bought a nineteen ninety nine dodge Durango now i don 't know if every dodge Durango is bad I, I I doubt they are, but this one was bad all right i mean I bought it, uh, I spent more money on it than I had on any vehicle up until that point in my life. I had to finance it, so now I have a monthly payment. Got insurance that goes along with it, you know, this whole nine yards. And, uh, and, and it would, but it got like eight miles a gallon, downhill, in neutral. and um, Which was not a problem, because gas was like 98 cents a gallon, $1.15 a gallon, was not a big deal. Until about the fourth payment on that Dodge Durango and I don't remember the situation or the conditions might have been 9/11 I don't remember when exactly but I bet it was 9/11 now if I think about it, it so like we bought it right before that but all of a sudden gas went to like $3 and a half a gallon and the value of my Dodge Durango plummeted like I owed so much more on that than it was worth that I'd have had to sell the Durango both kidneys and a lung to pay it off. Like I was just so far upside down. And this was the predicament I found myself in. This salesman had sold me this Dodge Durango promising me a bill of goods that was going to make my life so much better. It was going to be so much more. Had third row seating, which let me tell you something, something you need when you're married and got one kid. I mean, you want to be able to get to that back seat back there. I mean, you never know, especially when he's like, one, I mean, you just never know when you might need to throw a one-year-old in the third row seating of a Dodge Durango. And all of a sudden, I'm in a situation where I can't afford to drive it because the gas is too high, and I can't afford to sell it because I owe too much on it, but I can't afford something else to drive because I've spent all the money I got on it. And so it's like every day was, a, I don't even know what to do. And I'm like, I will never listen to that salesperson again until the next decision that I got ready to make. And suddenly, the slick tongue and the manipulation happens again. And I found myself victim to the same salesman over and over. And here's the thing. It wasn't the salesman at the Dodge dealership that I was a victim to Not really. I mean, after all, I was actually working at that Dodge dealership at that time, and the person whose name was on the sales receipt as a salesman was mine. I'd sold myself that Dodge Durango. And the next decision I made that the salesman sold me on wasn't someone at that Dodge dealership. In fact, it wasn't even a person at all. It was the emotions that live somewhere about right here. Sometimes in Scripture we see it referred to as our heart. It's the seat of our emotions, the place where decisions derive from. And I bet you that you have fallen victim to the same salesman at some point in your life. Because the facts are the greatest salesman any one of us have ever experienced in our life comes from within. And it's our heart that Scripture says is wicked beyond deceit that is more than prepared at all times to have a conversation with your brain to tell you all of the reasons why you ought to pull the trigger on the decision that you're considering and all the positives that could come along with making a decision like the one you're thinking about doing. And when you're in a situation where you really don't want advice, you just want permission, your heart is more than willing to grant you all the reasons why you deserve to do the thing that you're thinking about doing. And it paints a beautiful picture of how great things will be if you'll just pull the trigger. And here's the thing. The story I told you of a Dodge Durango, well, that's probably the better story of all the things that my heart has convinced me to do over the years. You see, it's one thing when your heart convinces you to do something that results in a financial situation. But sometimes the decisions that our heart convinces us to do have larger ramifications than just being upside down on a vehicle and having difficulty putting gas in it because it costs $3 a gallon. You see, the same heart is the salesman that convinces us to do things that wreck us, not just financially, but relationally, or wreck us emotionally, or even worse yet, wreck us spiritually. Our heart is the one that convinces us to do what is right in our own eyes, as we learn in the book of Judges, where we only see the positive possibility of the decisions that we are making. And we find ourselves victim to our own motivations. You see, it's interesting that in the Old Testament we're told that this heart, the seat of our emotions, is is deceit beyond, is, is wicked beyond deceit. It's hard sometimes for us to realize that, that this, this place where our emotion exists is wicked. I mean, after all, you don't just wake up every morning necessarily having wicked thoughts, and wicked seems like such a strong word, but here's the interesting thing about our heart. Our heart has the ability to communicate with our brain in such a way that our very motivations become questioned. To the point that if you'll just really be gut level with yourself and be honest for just a few minutes and think about some of the recent decisions that you've made and try to evaluate exactly what was your motivation behind them. And what you'll find is the difficulty that comes from ascertaining the real core motivation of your life. I'll give you an example. Maybe at some point in the last, say, six to eight weeks, maybe you heard about someone who had a need. Maybe somebody who was down on their luck or somebody who needed a hand. And maybe you just decided, well, I have the capability, I'll help that person. It's all a good thing, right? There's nothing wrong with that. That's all good. That's a, that's a great thing is to recognize a need in somebody's life, realize that you have the capability to meet that need, and then go meet that need. Sounds great, right? How many times, though, along with meeting that need, did your heart say, well, make sure that, you know, you want to make sure people know that, that you met that need, I mean, After all, the occasional pat on the back or thumbs up or a like on social media is okay. And how many times do you find yourself even doing good things with bad motivation? You say, well, I've never really thought about that before. Well, see, that's because your heart is a master salesman. It does a great job at clouding the real motivation and the real intention. And it's your heart that will cause you to do things and say things and pull the trigger on things that your brain would never do. That if you were to sort it out logically, you'd be like, this makes no sense whatsoever. But suddenly you're doing the thing that doesn't make sense. Because all the brain needs is enough convincing and permission to do what he really wants to do. And the heart is more than willing to only paint one side of a picture. To say, this is exactly what you want to do. And I can't help but think that the Apostle Paul, when he was writing a letter to the church in Ephesus, didn't have this in mind. When he wrote the letter and he gets to the end and he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That Paul begins to realize that because our heart is wicked beyond deceit, because it's manipulative because we can't trust our own motivations. That Paul says, listen, you got to find your strength in the Lord and in the power of his might. Even though we live in a culture that says that we're, we could be independent and we should pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And we should turn over a new leaf and we should have some new resolution. And we should be better and make ourselves better. Even though we live in that culture, the truth of the fact remains is that you are not good enough you're not good enough your heart may tell you that you've got something to offer but the fact is is that when God looks at us there is nothing about us that God looks at and goes I tell you what I'd just be a whole lot better off to have them on my side In fact, when God looks at us, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, he gives a description of who we are. And he says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of the power of this air. You were sons of disobedience and by nature, children of wrath. That's the picture of me and you. Is that we have nothing to offer. There is nothing good in us. Scripture says there is none good, no, not one. There is nothing in us that God looks at and goes, I would be better off to have them on my side. But the most beautiful picture, I think, in the entire book, the entire letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, is that after he describes our depravity and after he describes that we are dead, that we walk according to the course of the power of air, that we are sons and daughters of disobedience, that we are by nature children of wrath, he then writes the two greatest words maybe written in all of scripture. And he says, but God, being rich in mercy, loved us, restores us. He says, it's by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, it is the gift of God, is not of works, so there's no reason to boast. That in spite of our depravity, God said, I look at you, and it's not that I need you. It's not that my life is better because of you. I just look at you and made a choice to love you and to redeem you and to restore you. That you were dead in your trespasses, but God raises us out of our circumstances, raises us out of our depravity. And that's why later on in Ephesians 6, Paul would say, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Is that he realizes that life is not just a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle. And if you're going to be in a spiritual battle, you better be prepared spiritually. And there is nothing about you that is intimidating to our enemy. When you find yourself a soldier of the cross and you're going into battle spiritually, understand that the enemy is not intimidated by you. He crept into a garden with the only perfect humans that ever existed that walked with God daily and manipulated them. You are an easy prey. And so Paul says so you can't go in your strength and you can't go in your might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Take on his ability, his power. Live under his protection, live within his ability. Walk into battle clothed in his righteousness alone. And he says, by doing that, he then says, and put on the whole armor of God. Be strong in the the Lord and the power of his might and put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We should understand that the enemy is a master strategist. He's playing chess while we're playing checkers. He's three steps ahead of you. He's three plays ahead of you. He knows your motivation. He knows your inclinations. And he is more than willing to provide the reason why you should pull the trigger on the next decision that you're already thinking about pulling the trigger on. And so therefore, you better put on the whole armor of God so that you can be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. And I think Paul tells us all this to say, what your fight is against is way more intimidating, way more powerful, way more capable than you can even imagine. And if you're going to go into a spiritual war, you better put on spiritual armor. He says, so therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore. Isn't it amazing how many times Paul says to stand, 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 stand. It means be rigid, be aware, be defensive, be proactive. So stand having fastened on the belt of truth. We talked about that last week. If you missed last week, go and catch up online. It's available. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And this morning, I think when Paul, I think what I want to share with you this morning is that when Paul was, was, was developing this metaphor of the armor of God, understanding that Paul is in prison when he's writing this, okay? Now, we don't know if he was in a prison cell or if he was in house arrest, but regardless of the circumstance, on a daily basis, Paul was able to look at a Roman soldier He was able to imagine that Roman soldier getting up every morning and preparing for the battle that was ahead. In in that day and time, all across the entire Roman province and the Roman kingdom, people would see a soldier on a daily basis. And they recognized the preparation that came for that soldier every day. I think as Paul was thinking about the and you part of our lives, that we are that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that that we walk according to the course of the power of the air, that we are by nature children of wrath. And understanding that God lifted us up out of that, I think he began to realize the practical nature of what it means to be found in the righteousness of God. You see, here's the real truth this morning that if you're taking notes, I want you to find a place to write this down. If you're not taking notes, Start bringing stuff to take notes. God might say something to you that you ought to remember. And here's the cool thing you don't even have to remember a pen and a piece of paper. I know you got them little phones with you. Take it out, it's got a notepad. Write it down. Here's what I'm trying to tell you listen, at the cross, Jesus paid it all. And on the cross, as he paid it all, he made an offer too good to be true. And the offer is this that you can stand before God with every accolade and every good thing and every bad thing and all the depravity and as much as you can muster and you can stand before God and go, I hope everything that I have done is enough. And what you will find is it is not. What you will find is that you will stand before God having broken virtually every one of God's laws. Beginning with the first one, it says, you'll have, you should have no other gods before me. And you'll realize, you'll stand before God and go, I had all kind of gods that I put before you. All kinds of little idols. And then you'll say, well, maybe maybe one out of ten ain't so bad. I get nine of them right. And then you'll realize that you're not supposed to lie to your neighbor. And you'll be like, well, I mean, I didn't lie a bunch. It was those little white lies. But, I mean, sometimes I did lie. Actually, sometimes I some really big lie. Okay, so I'm 0 for 2, but maybe there's some more. Well, thou shalt not covet. Right, especially if we're doing King James, thou shalt not covet, or we just say it this way, you you shouldn't want what somebody else has that you don't have. And you go, Well, shoot, that happens to me all the time. But I mean, doesn't God surely God would be okay with that? And we go on and on down the list and we realize that we're in violation of God's law. And we have this option, stand before him and go, Well, God, I'm a liar, I'm a thief, I'm an idol worshiper, I struggle with lust. I write bad checks, I'm mean, or we stand before God and we go, God, I have nothing to offer. But on the cross, your son died for the forgiveness of my sins. And the only thing that I have to stand before you with is that I have no confidence in me, but I got all the confidence in what Jesus did on the cross. I've transferred my trust from myself to him. And the finished work of the cross, where Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished, it is paid in full, is in what I base my confidence. And with a full assurance of the entire New Testament and the, and the disciples and the apostles who followed with him and wrote the letters to the churches in full confidence, we can look at, the, look at God and say, even though I was dead in my trespasses and my sins and walked according to the course of the power of this world. I was a son or a daughter of disobedience and by children of the nature of wrath, God, being rich in mercy, has redeemed me because what he did on the cross was enough and I place all my trust in that. And when that happens, when you place, when you transfer the trust in the better than you're ever going to get deal of the century, at that exact moment that you place your confidence in the cross of Christ, God the Father declares you righteous. You say, what does that mean, Matt? You ready? He declares you in a state of being as though you had never messed up. You see, the idea of righteousness is this. The idea of righteousness is that righteousness means to conform to a standard. It doesn't mean to be as good as you could possibly be. It doesn't mean to do all you can do and be all you can be. It means there is a standard of right and wrong. There's a standard that indicates right, and you measure up to what's right. I'll explain it to you. Maybe this way makes sense. Some of you know I like to do woodwork, and I like to build furniture particularly. Uh, But I like all forms of construction, woodwork. And so one day I was in my shop and I was doing some trim work. I was putting some trim on a project I was doing. And I don't know why I did this, but I don't like to wear a tool belt. I just just don't like them. And so I'm constantly having to find my tools. You know, like, where's the last time I laid down the pencil? That's probably where it's going to be the next time I need the pencil. And so I decided to streamline the process. And so I had a tape measure that I was using, to measure the trim. And I put another tape measure at the saw. That way I can measure in here, set the tape measure down, walk over, measure the board, cut it with a saw. So I did that, stretched out the tape measure, 64 and 5 eighths, go over to the saw, stretch out that tape measure, 64 and 5 eighths, make the cut, walk back in there, and miss the cut. I'm like, I gotta go back and cut it again, I cut a little bit too long. I go back and cut it, come back, measure another board, go in there and cut it, come back, didn't fit. On about the fourth or fifth time that I do this, when I'm about to throw stuff through a window, at one point I scream at myself, you have a math degree, learn your fractions. It occurs to me, wait a minute, I know fractions. So I get my tape measure out, That's in the room. And I go to the tape measure that's at the saw. The one in the room came from Harbor Freight. The one in the room, the one at the saw was a DeWalt. Stretch them out. You know what I found out? The inch on the Harbor Freight wasn't an inch on the DeWalt. There were two different measurements. I'm not entirely sure which one's right. I got my speculations, but here's what I know. An inch is standard. The inch is standard. It's a certain size. If the tape measure doesn't measure up to the standard, the tape measure is off, not the standard. And if you're making your cuts with the standard, but you're measuring them with something that's off, your project will be off. Righteousness is conformity to the standard. And you say, well, what's the standard? His name is Jesus. He is the epitome of the Father. He was sent to this world to give us a picture of what the Father was like. And so you can ask this question. If you want to know what is righteousness, it's Jesus. Is the decision I'm about to make, is the action that I'm doing, is what I'm thinking, is it what Jesus would think? Is it what Jesus would do? Is it the decision Jesus would make? He is the standard. It's not that right is somewhere on a scale of this is kind of right and kind of wrong. No, no. Right, listen to me, church, right is right, even if nobody else is doing it. And wrong is wrong, even if everybody's doing it. It's not subjective. It's not on a scale. It's not up for discussion. Because the standard is Jesus. The standard is not a moral code. The standard is not a set of documents. The standard is not a picture. The standard is Jesus, and so righteousness is conforming to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says, you need to understand that your heart is wicked. And your heart is difficult to ascertain its motivations. And so all day long, the enemy's schemes are going to be to hurl things at your heart, to try to convince your heart, to tell your brain, to pull the trigger on certain decisions. And so above everything else, you better protect Your heart, and the best way to do that is to put on a breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate that the Roman soldier would have worn would have been probably made of metal and it would have been draped over the shoulders and it would have hung down to about the thighs. And its intent was to protect all the vital organs. He says, if you want to protect your life, you better protect your heart because it's wicked and it's a good salesman. And so here's what you protect it with. You protect it with righteousness. You see, when you transfer your trust from trusting in yourself to trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross, you are declared righteous. But here's the crazy thing. That declaration of righteousness leaves you with a gap. You go, what kind of gap? Well, I don't know about you, but when I was 17 years old, 28 years ago, and God declared me righteous, I didn't become righteous in practice at that moment. In fact, I have 28 years of proof that my life is not always look like the declaration God made about it. You see, the reason that righteousness being declared to you and imputed to you on the cross is so important is because imputed righteousness, declared righteousness, enables you to experience practical righteousness. Outside God making you right, you can't even do what's right. But, the re- but because he has declared you right, you have the opportunity, the responsibility, and the privilege to live like the right you've been declared. Over the last 17 years, I've had the privilege to be the pastor of this church. I, I love this church. There's nothing I'd rather do. Um, you know, we just experienced Pastor Appreciation Month. It was in October. And uh, this morning, a couple brought me a gift. Um, probably the greatest, one of the greatest gifts I've ever gotten in 17 years of being your pastor. It was a card. A card. You say, that's the best gift you've ever got. Yeah, because tucked in that card was a statement that said, "Because of what you did, my soul has been saved." It's the best gift I'll ever get. Um, I don't really care about money and I don't, and you know trips and prizes. That's that's the gift. I love nothing I love better than being the pastor of this church. I enjoy it. It's what wakes me up in the morning and puts me to bed at night. But over the last 17 years of being here, let me just tell you what this place has provided for me as like a tertiary benefit. I can't imagine pastoring a better church for people watching. In 17 years, I can't tell you the entertainment from the stories that come out of this place oftentimes. I mean, they're just sometimes, it's just like, is there a hidden camera? And are we getting paid for this footage? Right? Because here's the thing that I've noticed, this place is just so real and transparent and, and you walk in here with your issues and you're not afraid to have issues and I appreciate that. And there are some times I look around, I'm just like, this people watching is great because here's what I have noticed. I'm just, just being flat out honest with you. The majority of the issues and the problems and the chaos that I have seen stem from decisions that people make. Not where they didn't know what the right thing was to do, but where they didn't do the right thing they knew to do. You see, sometimes you need to get up in the morning, put on the breastplate of righteousness, and just live your life this way. I'm just going to do what's right. You say, really? That's all there is to it? I think so. And for some of you in the room right now, you're, trying to, you're imagining some crazy, odd story of like, I'm not sure how I'm gonna know what's right in this situation. And you've got this convoluted, chaotic, distorted, odd story that you fabricate in your mind. And you're like, man, what am I supposed to do? With that? What's the right thing to do? And here's the thing I'm gonna tell you. 17 years. The stories I've seen are the people who have gotten their life the most off course. Many of them are the people sitting in this room right now that thank God and his grace. Some of you have lived the most jacked up stories and today you're living a story of redemption that reflects how good God is. But the majority of the stories that I have seen that people have jacked up their lives can be traced back to a decision that they and everybody else knew was a dumb decision to make. You see, for most of us in, the li- in life, for most of us in the room right here, it's not the convoluted chaos that we need clarity on. It's that we walk into battle every day and we forget the breastplate of righteousness and our heart manipulates us to do things that we know aren't the right thing to do. And we do it because it either feels good, it seems good, or we think it's going to make us somebody. And we pull the trigger on decisions that we look back and almost immediately we experienced the regret of a salesman who oversold and underdelivered and i'm saying to you that you need to protect your heart it will be prone to make horrible decisions so take the take that out of the equation and protect your heart with righteousness you say what does that look like man I, this is what i think it looks like do what's right and leave the outcome to God. You see, I'm not here to say to you this morning that doing what's right is easy. There are oftentimes that doing what's right has a financial burden to it. There are times that doing what's right can cause relational tension. There are times that doing what's right puts you at a disadvantage in the rest of the world. There are some of you here today that you may be trying to take the next step in your career. And you may be being asked to do something that's just not really right. And you may say to me, Matt, but isn't it better for me to, I mean, I can better provide for my family if I was to just kind of fudge on my principles about this. And I would say this to you, do what's right and leave the outcome to God. Say, God, this may keep me from getting the promotion that I think I deserve. And my heart would say, just do it. It's not that big a deal. It's not, you're not going to prison for it. It's not all that big. I'd say to you, say to your heart, heart, you're not going to sell this to me. I'm going to do what's right, and I'm going to leave the outcome to God. If it means I don't get a promotion, then I'm just going to assume that God didn't think I needed that approach, that, that, that promotion. Do what's right. Leave the outcome to God. You see, what really happens is when we go to battle without the breastplate of righteousness, we invite our heart to manipulate our brain, to make a whole bunch of other stuff how we make decisions. Instead, the way we need to make decisions, maybe we just go back to the 90s and we get us a bracelet and we put it on our arm. It says, W-W-J-D, what would Jesus do? It just doesn't really get much better than that when it comes to making a decision. We just say Jesus is the standard. He is what defines righteousness. What would he do? Where would Jesus find himself in this situation? Here's the alternative. We can either put on the breastplate of righteousness and just do what's right and leave the outcome to God or We can continue to experience regret after regret after regret. The choice is up to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. And God, thank you for your word that proves itself over and over and over again to be relevant and practical. God, thank you that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins and walked according to the course of this world and We were sons and daughters of disobedience and by nature children of wrath. Thank you that you, being rich in mercy, you loved us, you raised us up, you redeemed us. In Jesus' name, amen.